0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Macular degeneration is a common eye disease and the leading cause of vision loss among people age 50 and older.
2: In some people, age-related macular degeneration advances so slowly that vision loss does not occur for a long time. In others, the disease progresses faster and may lead to a loss of vision in one or both eyes.
1: On today's program, we'll talk with a Mayo Clinic expert about macular degeneration and new research on treatments for macular degeneration.
2: Also on the program, we'll learn about treatment options for frozen shoulder
1: and how regenerative medicine is being used for cartilage repair in the knee.
2: That's this week's program, up next.
1: Macular degeneration is a leading cause of vision loss, affecting more than 10 million Americans. That's more than cataracts and glaucoma combined. In macular degeneration, the center of your retina, now remember the retina is that light-sensing tissue in the back of your eye that's similar to the film in a camera, and the central part of that retina is called the macula. And that's what begins to deteriorate in some people with age. And when that happens, it can cause blurred central vision or a blind spot in the center of your field of vision.
2: There are two types, wet macular degeneration and dry macular degeneration. Many people will first have the dry form, which can progress to the wet form in one or both eyes. Here to talk about macular degeneration is an expert on the disease, Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist, Dr. Sophie Bakri. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Bakri. It's nice to see you again. Thank you.
1: Dr. Sophie Bakri, good to have you on the program. So this uh, is a condition that seems to be coming more and more common. I mean, we heard little about macular degeneration, or at least I don't remember hearing much about it, a decade or two ago. And now you hear about it all the time.
3: Well, in a way, that's a good thing. I think it's because we have treatments, and um, as the treatments get better and better, we're trying to encourage patients to get the disease diagnosed earlier because um, earlier detection is earlier treatment and better visual outcomes.
1: Talk about the risk factors. I mean, obviously age, and that's probably part of the reason that we're seeing more cases, because people are living longer?
3: Uh, definitely. So age is the number one risk factor, um, but also uh, genetics, it can run in families um the genetics of macular degeneration is uh, very complex
1: age number one risk factor but there are others aren't there so, i mean diabetes smoking obesity
3: besides age and uh, and, and genetics uh, obviously race comes into genetics it's more common in caucasians and uh, you know patients of northern european origin um less common in hispanics and african american patients Um, In terms of other modifiable risk factors, I would say that smoking is the number one modifiable risk factor. Uh, Hypertension as well and and cardiac risk factors can be associated with uh, macular degeneration as well. When it comes to something being
2: age-related, you know, if you live long enough, maybe everybody ends up with macular degeneration of
3: some sort. Not necessarily. I mean, I've seen, uh, you know, some very healthy uh, 85-year-old maculars, and I've seen some not-so-healthy ones afflicted with macular degeneration. And likewise, I've seen patients uh, present with macular degeneration, um, you know, as young as uh, late 50s.
1: What about sun exposure? Is there a relationship?
3: Quite possibly. Um, So we certainly advise patients to uh, wear UV-protective glasses when they're out in the sun.
1: The usual symptoms. How do do patients present and, and why?
3: Usually patients will notice either a blind spot in the center of the vision or uh, blurriness or that lines are no longer straight and are appearing squiggly. Many times, you know, the patient isn't really thinking about macular degeneration and is unaware and so sometimes um, patients have these symptoms for quite a while before they actually present uh, to an eye doctor for diagnosis.
1: So they're not really sure what's wrong and they just sort of put it off thinking that it might get better?
3: Exactly. And that's why we need to increase awareness about macular degeneration and symptoms because when you start to get squiggly lines, it could quite possibly be um, an early blood vessel sneaking under the macula. And the earlier we treat that blood vessel, the better the outcomes.
2: The center part of your vision is what you lose. So those squiggly lines that you're talking about,
3: do you see those in the center of your vision or are those off on the sides? No, they're in the very center, unfortunately.
1: And how do you make the diagnosis?
3: Certainly clinical examination, you know, looking in the eye, um, we often um, see hemorrhages, um, macular thickening, uh, indicating fluid, uh, drusen.
1: Um, uh, Dr- drusen?
3: Drusen are spots under the retina. It means uh, rock in German, I think. <laughs> and uh, you typically see those with dry macular degeneration. But we have some very sophisticated diagnostics in the eye clinic, and that allows us to detect macular degeneration very early. So, for example, if somebody presented late, say, with one eye, and you know, it's pretty late when you see hemorrhages, um, for example, in the retina. So that's as we, some
1: bleeding that, that you actually see, some blood,
3: yes, collection yep. of blood. Yes, often it's, it's bright red blood. But the patient's going to be more alert to something happening in the other eye. And certainly with frequent visits to the eye clinic and frequent treatments, we scan the second eye as well, and we're able to detect any changes in the second eye much earlier than what was detected um, in the first eye. If
2: it's something that happens as your eyes get older, is, what's the benefit of
3: finding it early? What's the benefit? So, um, um, as you mentioned, there are two kinds of macular degeneration, the dry and the wet. Now, for the dry kind, if it reaches a certain stage or the intermediate stage, um, and to, to diagnose that stage, we look for these drusen. Um, you, can, you look rocks, rocks. <laughs> <laughs> We look for rust Basically. Um, we can prescribe um, uh, vitamins. There are eye vitamins that have been shown to slow down the progression of this dry macular degeneration by about 20%. Um, We also recommend a Mediterranean diet, for example. Um, That's been shown to be beneficial in slowing down the progression of macular degeneration. Um, So I think lifestyle changes and vitamins can make a change if the dry kind is detected. But once the wet kind is detected and we see that blood under the macula, it's time to treat with eye injections. (laughs) I've heard about there. these
1: people coming in once a week or once a month for eye injections. Tell us a little bit about that. That really doesn't sound like much fun.
3: So um, I won't comment on that, but <laughs> all I can say is that we numb the patients really well. We use uh, numbing drops, and then we sterilize the surface of the eye with uh, betadine to prevent infection. And the needle that we use is very, very tiny. Okay, it's, We use 32-gauge needles, so that's... Uh, that's about the size or smaller than, uh, than insulin syringes. And um, with our techniques, most patients don't feel anything at all. Well, and if the option... Without those shots, is that you lose your vision? They're probably pretty motivated to come in and get those shots. Yes. Yeah, so patients, patients are motivated, and certainly those that aren't, and uh, those who skip an injection um, for whatever reason, whether it's that uh, they don't want it or convenience, once they start to get those symptoms back, they soon realize how much they need these injections, and they become uh, very good at returning for the Problem is, you
1: can't close your eyes when they're doing it. Oh.
3: <laughs> I'm sure that they can work around that.
1: uh, Is this for both the wet and the dry?
3: So the injections currently are just for the wet kind. So um, they um, shrink down the blood vessels, and uh, the reason that we often give them once a month is because that's the duration uh, of the drug. And uh, what we find uh, usually is that for the first six months or so, patients need the injections very frequently, but often as time goes on, we can extend... The interval between injections. So um, I have many patients that only need the injection once every three months, for example.
1: And, and when you are injecting this, you put it right into the fluid in the central part of the eye. Is that what you're doing? And, and what does the, injet, the, the medicine do?
3: So uh, we inject uh, the medicine through the white part of the eye right into the vitreous cavity where the jelly is. And then that medicine seeps through the retina, and uh, blocks a molecule uh, known as uh, VEGF, V-E-G-F, vascular endothelial growth factor. And blocking that molecule causes the blood vessel to shrink down. That's amazing.
2: I mean, that's a great gift that that can help patients in that way. What if someone wants to delay the onset of macular degeneration, and they're not going to start taking those vitamins yet, I know you don't want to hear this, but if kale is the answer, are you ready to eat some kale <laughs> for lunch today?
1: No, I'll take the vitamin.
2: Okay. Yeah. Well, tell but us, what are some of the foods that would be great to prevent macular degeneration?
3: So, um, before foods, we have to think about a healthy lifestyle. Not smoking, I think, is the number one thing. Exercise has been shown to be helpful as well. Um, and in terms of diet, um, salmon, sardines, fish high in omega 3s, uh, nuts, and of course, kale, spinach, leafy greens, mm-hmm. and just think colors on the plates.
1: Okay, but you talked about vitamins, not only, uh, but but mainly in terms of of treatment. What vitamins are you talking about? And would it be wise if uh, macular degeneration runs in your family to start taking those vitamins sooner rather than later?
3: So that's a great question, and, and I get that question all the time. So that's been studied in the Age Related Eye Disease Study. And those vitamins have only been shown to be effective in slowing the progression of macular degeneration if mm-hmm. they're given to the intermediate stage of macular degeneration. So when the ophthalmologist looks in and there's a certain number of uh, drusen, um, that's when it's most beneficial. For the very early stages, it hasn't really been shown to be beneficial. That's when we recommend the lifestyle changes.
1: And when you're talking about vitamins, are these something that you can get over the counter, or is it a specific vitamin?
3: So uh, yes, the uh, it's called the Age Related Eye Disease Study AREDs formulation number two, and they are over the counter.
1: Uh, say that again. The, so
3: AREDs, wh- A R E D S number two, AREDs two formulation. They're over the counter, and that has certain doses of uh, vitamins uh, A, C, E, zinc, copper, lutein, um, zeaxanthin as well.
1: But you would only take those if you were diagnosed with the intermediate stage of the dry.
3: Yes, essentially, uh, the ophthalmologist would make the recommendation to take those vitamins and um, you would then buy them over the counter.
1: We're talking about eye diseases of the macula with Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist Dr. Sophie Bakri. So, Dr. Bakri, we know that you're doing some research on a different disease of the macula called macular telangiectasia or Mactel. (laughs) Tell us about that and, and, of course, the difference between that and macular degeneration, the standard type.
3: Mactel is a disease that affects uh, the macula, the center of the vision, and what we often see is tiny squiggly uh, blood vessels around the center of the macula. Sometimes there are also missing photoreceptors degenerating cells as well. So we often see some uh, little tiny gaps in the macula, some tiny holes. And Magtel is a disease that we really don't know too much about. And that's why there's uh, so much excitement about research in this area. So it occurs in uh, patients who are you know, 40 to 60 years um, of age.
1: So younger than?
3: Younger and um, it, it looks different. I mean, s- sometimes you know, there's some overlap, but I think with the sophisticated testing uh, that we have, we can definitely differentiate Mactel from wet age-related macular degeneration. And it's not as common? No, it's very rare. It's actually called an orphan disease. Wow. What are you coming up with for treatment?
1: Because up to this point, there's been no treatment, right?
3: There's been no treatment. There have been many things that have been tried for... Um, for example, um, with the new blood vessels, um, you know, we've tried to shut them down with the same injections as macular degeneration, but that really hasn't worked very well. It's come to light now that as well as being a disease that has these squiggly blood vessels, it's also a uh, neurodegenerative disease. So it causes degeneration of the retina. And these new treatments are really targeting retinal uh, regeneration or delaying of the uh, degeneration of the retinal cells. So what are you doing to them? For them, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there are actually um, two parts to this research. Um, this uh, research is a part of a large uh, consortium funded by the Lowry Medical uh, Foundation. And the first part is really a multi-center study to uh, look at the phenotypes of Mactel. So phenotypes, it means doing a lot of imaging to learn more about how this disease can present and how this disease can look. We're also uh, doing genetic testing of um, affected uh, patients with Mactel and also their family members. But having a lot of patients participate um, in this uh, study, which is basically a registry study we can learn a lot more about how Mactel presents and the genetics of it.
1: Are the symptoms fairly similar to macular degeneration or or different?
3: Patients present with blurry central vision, so um, there is a lot of overlap with symptoms.
1: But you can tell the difference... Based on looking in the eye, or you, do you have to do more sophisticated testing to differentiate so, between the two diseases?
3: I think with either disease, when it reaches the later stages and things are really obvious, um, then it's much easier to diagnose than when uh, we see patients with the earlier, more subtle stages. That's what requires more imaging. But I think that the reason to do imaging, even when it's obvious, is that there are so many different stages and so many different manifestations of the disease um, that um, it 's really important to uh, figure that out
1: so the first thing you 're trying to do is develop a registry, so you you can group all of these patients together and study them because the group is relatively small, correct
3: um, Yes um, the, I mean the number of patients uh, nationally and uh, you know internationally is very small, and that 's why it 's important to have. Um, as many patients as possible participate in this so that we can learn a lot more about the disease and particularly the genetics.
1: And then what's the treatment that you're, that you're working on that could help these people?
3: The treatment is, is very exciting. It's a phase three trial where 50% of the patients uh, receive the treatment and 50% of the patients uh, receive the sham, the pretend treatment. What the treatment um, entails is surgically implanting a small device that releases cells into the vitreous. And uh, And the
1: vitreous, again, is the jelly inside the eye, the middle part of the eye.
3: Yes. So it's implanted in the operating room. It releases this uh, uh, factor called CNTF, or ciliary neurotrophic factor. These are factors that help the retinal cells uh, stop degenerating.
1: And so there's some evidence so far. When you say phase three, that means that you've already tried it in some patients and it, it showed some promise, and so then you get to go to the next phase.
3: Exactly. In the phase two study, there were some really strong signals that this was effective in slowing down the degeneration of the retina. And so for the phase three, uh, we uh, you know, have an even larger number of patients, and obviously the study design is a lot more refined, but it's a 24-month study study. Um, and we'll be doing uh, lots of uh, retinal scanning and um, uh, image comparisons in the sham versus the treated groups.
1: So that's sort of interesting, sham versus treated. So if you're going to do an operation on the eye to put this inside the eyeball, you, do you do the same operation, only the uh, the sham patients don't have a drug in whatever you put in there?
3: So the operation is uh, modified um, so that the patient... Um, uh you know, has uh, some stitches in the eye and doesn't really know what's gone on, but the patients do not get uh the drug. Amazing. Uh, okay. Wow. Well
1: pretty exciting. <laughs> uh, particularly since there's never been a treatment for MACTEL before.
3: Right. No, it's it's very exciting, um, but it's also um it's a novel treatment approach as well in terms of implanting a device in the eye that releases cells to prevent a degeneration and that acts in the long term as well.
1: So well, a sustained rel-
3: delivery device.
1: We really hope that you continue to get positive results from this study. Well, thank you. We've been talking about macular degeneration and macular telangiectasia with Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist Dr. Sophie Bakri. Dr. Bakri, thanks so much for being with us.
2: Thank you so much. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about a treatment for frozen shoulder. And later on the program, how regenerative medicine may help improve treatments for knee pain.
1: And now, here's the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Mindfulness is a buzzword these days. Research is proving that mindfulness may truly be a very good thing. Mindfulness may be associated with fewer menopausal symptoms for women, according to a recent Mayo Clinic study. Researchers discovered that being mindful may be especially helpful for menopausal women struggling with irritability, anxiety, and depression. Dr. Richa Sood, the study's lead author, says they found that midlife women with higher mindfulness scores experience fewer menopausal symptoms, and these findings suggest that mindfulness may be a promising tool to help women reduce menopausal symptoms and overall stress. Now, mindfulness involves focusing attention on the present moment and observing thoughts and sensations without judgment. Prior research has shown practicing mindfulness can reduce stress and improve quality of life. Fortunately, mindfulness is a skill that can be learned. And in other news, a big tip on how to become a better patient. Don't let embarrassment get in the way of honesty. Dr. Tina Arden says you should be as specific as possible when explaining why you'd like to see a doctor because it helps to make sure they know how quickly they need to see you and how much time you need. See, certain symptoms or complaints may deserve more time. Also, be sure to continue the openness during the appointment. Be very honest with your doctor when asking questions during the office visit. Don't fudge on answers about things like medications, alcohol use, sleep habits, and exercise routines. And also be inquisitive. Just like your health care provider, take notes and ask follow-up questions about anything that's unclear. And finally, be accountable and follow the plan you've created for living a healthier life. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Frozen shoulder. It's also known as adhesive capsulitis. And it's a fairly common problem. Frozen, in this case, refers to the fact that the shoulder is fixed or stiff. You can't move it. And it's almost always painful. Well, it happens when the sac or the lining or what we call the capsule that holds the shoulder joint in place tightens up due to inflammation, and that restricts the joint's movement.
2: Signs and symptoms typically begin gradually, worsen over time, and then resolve, but it takes time and treatment. It may take a year for your shoulder function to return. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Christopher Camp. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Camp. It's good to see you.
4: Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor.
2: Dr.
1: Camp, nice to have you here. Thank you. Frozen shoulder, uh, it's an interesting problem. Uh, And how common is it really? How often do you see it in your clinic?
4: Very common, actually. Um, And and so, and it's difficult, too, to diagnose sometimes because it overlaps with a lot of different shoulder problems that tend to occur in the same demographic. So most commonly occurs in people in their 40s, 50s, 60s. Most commonly occurs in females. But that's also the same demographic that also starts to get shoulder arthritis, rotator cuff tears all of which have some similar symptoms. So we see it commonly, and then we have to work pretty hard to sort of sort out what exactly the problem is and what our treatment's going to be, because it varies depending on the diagnosis.
1: Can you usually determine a cause for it?
4: No, usually we cannot, and that's one of the tough things about it. We know a lot about it. We know the different stages. We, We know how long it takes to get better. We know how to treat it. We think we have an idea of what causes it, but we don't know for sure. Uh, We know that it starts by an inflammatory process. So something happens within that joint capsule that you were describing. It gets really inflamed, painful, starts to thicken up, and then the shoulder gets really stiff.
2: You think you know what causes it? What is that?
4: Yeah. So (laughs) we know that injuries increase the risk. So And it can be a minor injury, just a small little tweak to the shoulder um, and maybe something really subtle and patients really didn't think much about it. And then over the course of the next few weeks, it happens. We we know that it can happen after shoulder surgery. So if you've had surgery in the shoulder, there's more inflammation after surgery. So that places a patient at increased risk for developing as well. And then we also know there are a few risk factors. So folks with diabetes and thyroid problems tend to be a higher risk for getting it. And it can be a tougher to treat in those patient populations as well. So
1: Thyroid problems, that's sort of interesting. It? And being female, mm-hmm. is uh, you're more likely to get it? Well, I just
2: mm-hmm. want to know what's the difference between... When you have a really tight shoulder and maybe a couple of knots in there Mm -hmm. and it gets so it feels like you can't move it around, Mm -hmm. I suspect that is not frozen shoulder, even though it kind of feels like it.
4: You're correct. Yeah, exactly. And so frozen shoulder really, really refers to the glenohumeral joint, which is the ball and socket joint. That's the main joint of the shoulder. So it's the lining around that. So it's a very specific term describing a specific area. Uh, people commonly get tightness around the shoulder or knots in the muscles. That's a little bit of a a different thing. So it has to be focal to right at the joint, the ball and socket joint, Mm -hmm. in order to be frozen shoulder.
1: And how do you nail down the diagnosis? You said it can sometimes be difficult based on history, exam,
4: both, imaging? All all of the above. And really the hallmark is uh, obviously the, the main sign and symptom is pain and decreased motion. So an inability to move the shoulder. And typically, patients will come in and say, I can't lift my arm up. And then I try to lift it, and I can't lift their arm up either. Really? So if they can't do it and I can't do it, that usually signals frozen shoulder, which is different than a rotator cuff or a muscle problem. If they can't lift it because of their own muscle, usually if I take the shoulder, then I can lift it for them. But in frozen shoulder, neither one of us can lift it. So that, that's kind of the hallmark of the diagnosis.
2: And that's always the case? It cannot be moved?
4: Correct. And, okay. and that's sort of the, the nature of it. It can't be moved by the patient or anyone else who's trying to do it.
2: Well, then that seems like it'd be easy to diagnose if that shoulder does not move.
4: <laughs> it does. But <laughs> all, all of these problems exist on a spectrum. And so some are extremely easy. Some are a little bit difficult. And the problem is sometimes they can occur with rotator cuff tears, or Uh with arthritis. So you have to sort out which symptoms are coming from which problem.
1: And what about, does imaging help you at all, or just to rule out other things?
4: It mostly helps to rule out other things. There are some signs that we can look for on on an MRI. It'll show that the capsule or the joint lining is really thickened, and that's very classic. However, we don't typically get it. We don't typically get an MRI for frozen shoulder if it's pretty clear that that's what's going on based on the patient's symptoms and our examination. Don't always need that.
2: So how do you treat it?
4: Great question. So it really, it it exists in three phases. And so it depends on which phase we catch the patient in. So the first phase is the inflammatory phase, which is very painful. So that's when the capsule starts to get inflamed. it It gets thickened and the patients are having a lot of pain. If we catch it in that first phase, we typically will start with a steroid injection, a cortisone or a corticosteroid injection into the joint. And then that sort of goes in and it, and it bathes or soaks the capsule and hopefully decreases the inflammation, which will decrease the pain and improve the motion.
1: Is that a painful procedure?
4: It, uh, it can be. It's a I mean, It requires a needle stick but it is at least quick. So maybe slightly painful, but quick. Most patients really tolerate well without much sedation or pain medication. At all. You're already so in
2: well quite, that. A, quite a bit of pain, so
1: probably <laughs> doesn't true. matter.
4: Relatively speaking, it's not too bad. All exactly. right. that would be
1: phase one or stage one disease.
4: Exactly. And then that's followed up with physical therapy. And physical therapy is really the mainstay of treatment. You just have to keep working at it and stretching it. And then if we catch patients in the second phase, which is the stiffening phase, so that's usually the inflammation is done. So they're not having a lot of pain, but the shoulder's very stiff. The injection's not quite as helpful in that second phase, and it's really just physical therapy and just stretching. And it's a, it's a pretty deliberate daily routine of stretching. And so the good news is that treatment is sufficient for the vast, vast majority of patients. So 80 to 90% of patients will have complete resolution of their symptoms and never have a problem again. That's the good news.
1: So you teach them a therapy program that they can do at home? And Correct. If they're religious about doing it, they can Correct. ultimately get most of their motion back?
4: The vast majority do. The vast majority will have it completely go away. Uh, the bad news, though, is that it usually takes 6 to 12 months. Mm. So we we talk a lot about patience and endurance and resilience. So you have to stick with it, and, and it takes a little while, but it almost always goes away. 80 to 90 percent of patients get full motion back, no pain, and do really well. They just got to hang in there.
1: And what about the outlier, that 10% mm-hmm. that, that don't seem to respond to those two modalities?
4: Right. So if, if you don't do that and you're continuing to have symptoms for six months or so, then surgery is an option. Surgery is a very successful and, and greater than 90%, almost 100% success rate, pretty pretty close to it. And that's typically an arthroscopic procedure. So it's minimally invasive, done through small little incisions where we go in and we release the capsule all the way around the joint, so we go ahead and do that work for you. So we release everything and stretch the shoulder out. Under anesthesia. Under anesthesia. while the patient's <laughs> So you're doing asleep. this through the small scope, the exactly. telescope. Exactly, yep, all, all done through through the arthroscope or the telescope. And then patients, are uh, they start physical therapy after that. So that's sort of a way for us to kind of help jumpstart them and sort of put them two feet in front of the finish line. So that will help speed things up for them and help them get a lot closer.
1: And that's about 10% of patients who don't um, get better with an injection and physical therapy? Correct, correct. Uh, So that's pretty good. And even if they don't respond to those two uh, modalities, you're 100% effective pretty much in the
4: surgical option. Pretty close. It's in the upper 90%. So for the unfortunate few who do go to surgery... The good news is almost all of those will have resolution of their symptoms with surgery.
2: If the reason why you have a frozen shoulder is not due to injury, if it's one of the others that we spoke about, are you likely to get it in the other shoulder as well?
4: Typically, no. Odds are in your favor there. Only about 20% of patients actually end up getting it in the other shoulder. However, as we mentioned, if you have diabetes or a thyroid problem, you may be slightly higher, somewhere in the 30 to 40% range. But for most people, only about a 20% chance that it happens on the other side.
1: All right, one last question. Mm -hmm. Why the shoulder? I mean, because you never hear about a frozen hip or a frozen knee.
4: Yeah, it's a great question. And we don't know for certain, but it could be that the shoulder has such a large capsule that goes all the way around the joint. It's a very shallow joint that has a lot of motion to it. So the capsule gets stretched in the shoulder, probably more so than any other joint. So it may be just prone to irritation because of the amount of motion that it has to go through.
2: Is there any way to prevent it?
4: Unfortunately not.
1: All right, frozen shoulder. Everything you wanted to know from a Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Christopher Camp. Dr. Camp, thanks so much for being
4: with us. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. If you suffer from knee pain, you're not alone. Every year, more than 12 million people visit their doctors because of knee pain and half of them because of damage to their cartilage. Now, cartilage is that glistening white substance on the end of the bone that acts as a cushion between the bones and allows for smooth, pain-free motion of the joint. Physicians and researchers have been trying to figure out how to grow cartilage and how to be able to repair cartilage for absolutely decades.
2: Mayo Clinic's department department of orthopedics in conjunction with Mayo Clinic Center for Regenerative Medicine is conducting a clinical trial that may be the next generation in being able to repair damaged knee cartilage. It would be good. Believe it. <laughs> this new approach called Reclaim completes the repair in a single surgery by using regenerative medicine techniques to recycle the patient's cartilage on the spot. Here to explain are Dr. Daniel Saris and Dr. Aaron Critch. Dr. Saris is an orthopedic surgeon, and Dr. Critch is an orthopedist with a focus in sports medicine. Welcome both of you to the program.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. You've got to be pretty excited about this. People have been trying to do this for years. Yes, I think that's
5: right. It it is exciting, and it's exciting for more than one reason. Uh, It's exciting to be able to do something new and to do something for the very first time in, in patient care, having a patient trust you to do something that's never been done on the world for the first time together. But it's also great to be doing that as a team. So not just me and Dr. Critch, we've become great friends, and now you're able to do something new in medicine with a good friend, but also with the people at the cell therapy facility, uh, at the people at the Center for Regenerative Medicine. It's a real team effort, um, and it uh, it's fun making a difference.
1: You have a bit of an accent.
5: Uh, yeah, that's true. I come from Amsterdam, Dr. Shives. Amsterdam. Yeah, <laughs> yes, born and raised in the Netherlands, and I just moved to Minnesota. Uh, you guys have a little bit of an accent here. Um, I moved here in February, so it's been a really interesting year, and we've accomplished quite a lot, and we've treated the first two patients already.
1: Really. So, Dr. Critch, uh, you see this fairly commonly, patients who have, have, have damage to their knee cartilage and these are, are mostly, these are not patients, older patients with arthritis. These are
6: younger patients who have injured their knee. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's the most typical patient that we see in the in the sports realm. Uh, the analogy I use coming from Minnesota is that uh, if you think of your knee inside of your joint like a road, if there's a single pothole on that road, you're really a good candidate for cartilage restoration surgery. If there's more potholes than road, we see sometimes here in Minnesota winters.
2: Happens that, quite often. <laughs> yes.
6: That, that's really that's more of arthritis we're talking about. And there may not be surgical options to repair the cartilage once it's that advanced. But in the state where there's that one pothole, we can really fill that pothole and uh, get patients back to act, high level of activity.
2: How has this cartilage damage uh, typically been treated in the past?
6: Well, I think we can say there were
5: two methods, maybe three methods of treatment that people will recognize. So one is called microfracture. You basically just drill holes in the bone and create a wound. And then Mother Nature has sort of a wound repair mechanism.
1: The other one is you can... Yeah, but, but Mother Nature never actually filled that defect with cartilage, correct? No,
5: no she filled it with fiber cartilage and sometimes okay. a piece of bone sticking Start. out like a little volcano. Okay. Uh, uh-huh. And it works for smaller defects. It works for a short period of time. But um, I think it is not the method of treatment for the patients that really need treatment of a serious defect. The great advantage of being in North America is that you have a good ex- access to allografts, so a transplantation of a whole plug of cartilage and bone. Um, that's a procedure that can also be used for some of these patients.
1: So that's a piece of cadaver bone yes. that has both the bone and the cartilage on it.
5: Yep, and we will take that from the freezer or from a fresher storage, and then you can use that, and the results of that are quite good. So, for a patient with a defect that extends deep into the bone, we feel that an allograft transplantation, the bone and cartilage plug, is a very good option. And at the moment, the only cell therapy that is available is that where you take some cartilage from the patient, you culture it for a couple of weeks or months, Uh, you need a biotechnology company and you need two surgeries, and in the second surgery, you put the cultured cells from the patient themselves back into the knee. That's called cartilage transplantation surgery. Macy is the abbreviation you can see. And online. does that work? Yes, it works very well. Uh, we were fortunate enough to do an international uh, controlled trial in Europe with many locations, and that was the reason why the FDA registered this. So that's the first registered cell therapy in America, um, and it works well for up to 20 years, we know now, cartilage-based um, repair. And with these newer techniques, we know five- to seven-year re- results are good.
1: Uh, but now you've got an even better way to... Fix these defects, right? And that's the reclaim procedure. So tell us about that.
6: Yeah, the reclaim uh, is a very exciting procedure because instead of uh, subjecting the patient to two surgeries, we can do this in one surgery. The other advantage to reclaim is we actually use uh, stem cells or medicinal signaling cells to harness the power of cartilage regeneration. So one of the downsides of Macy that uh, Dr. Saris described is that when you sell, send cells to the lab and you grow them for a prolonged period, they no longer are really resembling the normal cartilage cells. We hope that they become cartilage cells when they go back into the knee. But one of the advantages of using reclaim in a single stage is that those cells don't undergo dedifferentiation. They really maintain uh, their own personality and, and are cartilage cells when we put them back in the knee.
1: So tell us exactly what you do in the OR. So what we do is we clean the
5: rim of the defect... It's like when you wallpaper or paint. You don't start immediately on the original wall. You clean some stuff up first, right? Uh, What we can do is we can recycle the paint or the wallpaper. So we take a small piece of cartilage from the rim of the defect, and the cells in that tissue are still cartilage cells. The tissue isn't good anymore, but the cells are still fine. So we found a way to digest and chemically mince and digest that tissue, Um, and then we get the individual chondrons, the chondrocytes, with a little part of their listening apparatus around them, But those are not enough. Those cells are not enough to fill the whole defect. And that's why we mix them with these MSCs, the signaling cells, the stem cells. We need about 10% of the patient's own cartilage, 90% MSCs. We put it in fibrin glue, and you can spray paint it into the defect during one surgery. Uh, It takes about two and a half hours instead of four months, and we can do this for a tenth of the price.
1: Unbelievable. And you've already done it on two patients.
5: Yes. Uh, We're in a um, first-in-man study, and the FDA guidance tells us that we can do one patient every six weeks. Uh, We have more patients that want to be treated, and they're ready to be treated, but we treat a patient, then we wait for six weeks to make sure that everything's safe, everything's well taken care of, uh, so we're set to treat the third patient soon, and the first two are doing very well.
2: So using the phrase recycling the patient's cells actually is a pretty good turn of a phrase because it's the, the patient's cells. You're not getting any donations anywhere. It's their cells that are doing it.
6: Yeah, we know the cells that become the cartilage repair uh, are the patient's own cells, and Dr. Saris has done some elegant work um, in the Netherlands looking at that cartilage repair site. And even though we use the medicinal signaling cells to help regenerate the cartilage, they actually go away over time. And what's left in that regenerated tissue are all the patient's own cells. So what's the recovery like for this procedure?
5: Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, So from our patients now, it's too early to tell because they're only six weeks and 12 weeks out. But both of them are doing fine, and it's daycare surgery. So they're only in the hospital for a few hours. Uh, They walk when they leave the hospital. Uh, and the patients that we treated in the Netherlands, they actually recovered four to six months quicker than we were used to seeing from the other technologies. And obviously, it is because we are enthusiastic and because they were the first ever to be treated. But it's also because the signaling cells, the medicinal cells, don't only create growth factors. They also uh, change the intraarticular environment. And therefore, the knee heals up quicker. These patients had less swelling. They had less synovitis, inflamed uh, tissue in their knee joint. And that's part of those roles of those cells as well. That's quite advantageous.
1: Remarkable. But how did you have a pretty good idea that this was going to work? I mean, you must have done some studies prior to using it on humans.
5: Yeah, so Dr. Critch traveled with the International Cartilage Repair Society as one of the international fellows a couple of years ago, and that's when we met. And we had thought about something like this, and, and from those ideas came sort of a gut feeling that this was going to be right. Then we did a couple of in vitro lab experiments, Um, And we didn't even do any in vivo experiments because the human patient is the best one to experiment this in. Patients were gracious enough to understand. We explained it in the way that they trusted us, and they were part of our team.
2: Uh, Finally, what do people do that are listening that want to be part of this? Because I'm sure you said there are people who want to.
6: Yes. The list is long, I'm sure. Yes, we have information on the trial at clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, .gov. Um, we have a nice, uh, dedicated study coordinator, and we're certainly happy to, you know, to, to listen to patients and to screen patients to see if they'd be candidates uh, for this exciting trial. They All can right. send
5: us an email at cartilage at mayo.edu. Or knee at mayo.edu.
6: Excellent. Knee at mayo.edu.
1: There you go. Get your name on the list if you've got a cartilage defect of your knee. You guys are fabulous. And uh, what a remarkable advance uh, this potentially is. And all the best to both of you. Uh, We've been talking about next-gen cartilage repair with orthopedic surgeons, Dr. Daniel Saris and Dr. Aaron Critch. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you.
5: Thank you very much for having us. It was wonderful.
1: And that's our program this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
0: And I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: Thanks for joining us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please.